Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have tuned in. Before we get started today, I would be remiss if I didn't extend thoughts and prayers to the people of Puerto Rico uh, enduring these incredible earthquakes over the last two days. If you think about that in succession with the hurricanes that devastated that island a few years ago. It's really unimaginable how they are getting through. Uh, That's a subject that I'm sure we will end up talking about right here on Detroit Today in the coming days. Uh, But meanwhile, we do want to extend, again, best wishes to the people who are there and, of course, to people who are here who have relatives and friends on the island. Okay, today we are going to continue with our ongoing Defining 2020 series, where we take a look at issues and terms that are going to play a pivotal role in the coming year, and especially in the presidential election in November. Today, we're looking at a topic that has taken up more time than any other in the Democratic debates that have taken place so far. Healthcare. Joining us for this conversation is a person who knows the topic inside and out. Julie Rovner is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Julie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. So here's where I want to start this conversation today. It is 2020, 10 years after the Affordable Care Act passed. And as I said in the open, we have had more discussion about health care in the Democratic debates leading up to the presidential campaigns and election than any other subject. When we passed the ACA in 2010, I'm not sure anyone thought that just 10 years later, this would be a subject that was still dominating politics and culture the way it is. I also think that the ideas that are being put on the table, which are pretty radical about how we might change the healthcare system in America would surprise people when would have surprised people if you had said that was what we would be doing 10 years later back in 2010. So I, I want to start with you explaining to us where we are with health reform in this country and why 10 years after a major shakeup, we are talking very seriously about big changes coming in the next few years. I think it's because the Affordable Care Act was kind of a paradox. It was at once the biggest change in the American health care system since the, the creation of Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s. But it was also a fairly incremental step. And it was acknowledged by the people who wrote it as an incremental step at the time. They needed, you know, the Republicans were all against it. They needed the support of all 60 Democrats in the Senate, some of whom were barely Democrats, um, some of whom were obviously liberals who wanted to go further. But in order to get it through, there had to be a lot of compromising and a fair bit of scaling back, things like losing the the public option, a public insurance plan that was in the version past the House but couldn't get through the Senate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you... The idea was that it would be a first step and that Congress would build on it. But, of course, the Republicans ran against it and took over the House just a couple of months after the law was signed. And the Democrats, you know, only briefly have had control of any of the the houses of Congress or the White House um, and never all three at the same time. And the Republicans have blocked any efforts to not just build on the Affordable Care Act, but to actually fix the things in the Affordable Care Act that did not work as anticipated. And there 
were a lot of those. And this was really the first major piece of legislation that didn't get what's known as technical corrections uh, as the years passed. There were obvious things that could have been fixed uh, that didn't get fixed. So on the one hand, the ACA was never going to be that huge a change to the health system. And on the other hand, the things that didn't quite work right were not able to get fixed. And I think that's part of why we are where we are today. So looking back at 2010 and what has happened in the intervening time before we get to the presidential election this year, would you say that the ACA is a failure of sorts? Do you, would, you, would you put it in that category? No, I really wouldn't. I mean, there was just a, a piece of research that came out yesterday. Everyone sort of ran around and screamed and yelled, oh, my goodness, if they take away the tax penalty for not having insurance, the insurance exchanges will collapse. Well, turns out that the tax penalty wasn't the reason most people were buying insurance. Most people were buying insurance on the exchanges because they were able to get subsidies from the federal government and therefore afford it. And lo and behold, we've now been an entire year without the tax penalty and the exchanges are doing okay. And signups for next year, even though the Trump administration cut outreach and assistance down to almost nothing, have been okay. So you definitely can't say that it's a failure. Is it an un, you know, a resounding success, has, having fixed everything? No. But as I mentioned, it was never really intended to be. It was a little bit overhyped as fixing things it was never intended to fix. What it was really intended to fix was the individual insurance market, a very small piece of how Americans get their insurance if they don't get it from Medicare or Medicaid or their employers. And that's sort of most of the population. And it did, to a large extent, fix the individual market. Now, there's still a problem. Uh, people who don't, who make too much to get the subsidies are being priced out. Uh, people of all ilks, whether they have uh, uh, private insurance through their employer or not, are getting priced out for reasons that I imagine we're going to discuss. So there's a big problem with cost. But the ACA wasn't really as much about cost anyway as it was about coverage. Hmm. Okay. So I think one of the things that may be adding to the angst that I think people have now about healthcare and the candidates who are addressing it is terms, the terms that people hear all the time but maybe don't know exactly what they mean or why they matter. So I want to go through a couple of terms that we've heard a lot in the debates, the Democratic debates, uh, in the, in the run-up to the campaign this year and, and have you define them for us. So let's start with deductible, the different kinds of out-of-pocket costs that we have when we have health insurance. What are they and why do they matter? Deductibles are what you pay before your insurance starts helping you with your cost. And deductibles used to be sort of traditionally a couple of hundred dollars. Medicare's Part B deductible was $100 for a very long time. Um, it's, it's more than that today. Um, but what happened was in the early 2000s, uh, when what the, sort of the last time we had really dramatic health inflation, uh, a lot of economists suggested that maybe if people had, quote unquote, more skin in the game, in, in other words, they had to pay more of their own costs before insurance started covering it, they would be better shoppers. And so we started seeing these high deductible health plans. Um, some of them were $1,000 or, you know, $2,000 for a family. And they were considered very high at the time. And 
it, there was not a whole lot of evidence to show that they were really helping because it's very hard to shop for health care. It's hard. It's still to this day very hard to find out what something costs before you get it. It's one of those rare products where you only know what it costs after the fact. Mm-hmm. So we've seen higher and higher deductibles as employers have sort of become concerned about how much health care for their workers is costing. And now we're in this situation where deductibles in the Affordable Care Act and in many employer plans are in the thousands of dollars. Well, we know from the Federal Reserve that most people don't have more than $400 for an emergency. So they're having trouble paying these multi-thousand dollar deductibles. And now we're seeing hospitals and doctors uh, suing patients who can't pay their deductibles. Um, It's become a really big problem. Yeah. And uh, these deductibles, as you say, are growing. And uh, is that is that an outgrowth of the things that the ACA either changed or failed to address? More than more than the ACA failed to address. I think one of the big surprises when the uh, plans came out on the health exchanges was how big the deductibles were. And that was partly because the insurers knew that they had to cover many more uh uh, benefits than they used to. Mm-hmm. There were there were requirements for prescription drug coverage and maternity coverage and mental health coverage. Um, and in order to cover all of those benefits and keep the premiums to a point where people would buy the product, they basically hiked deductibles into the thousands of dollars. That was kind of the trade-off. It's like pushing down on the balloon and the air is going to come up somewhere else. You know, same thing with employers who didn't want to pay higher premiums, didn't necessarily want to cut back on benefits. But what it becomes is kind of, it started out as a tax on the sick, people who needed to use health care, but now it's become sort of a tax on anybody who uses health care at all. Mm-hmm. So it is it is a continuing problem. It has to do more with what's happening in the health industry than anything that the Affordable Care Act actually did. Okay. There's a series of terms I want to talk about that I think get a little blurry in people's minds. And we've heard each of these terms quite a bit, I think, along the campaign trail. Uh, the first one's single payer. The second is universal health care. And the third is Medicare for all. I'm not sure people really can draw the distinctions between those three terms. Let's start with single payer. Okay. The single payer just means that there are not multiple entities paying for health care. Um, single payer is traditionally a government payer, but it doesn't have to be. You can have a a public-private consortium that pays basically everybody's medical bills. And in a single-payer system, the the actual delivery system can be public or private. It just means that there are not competing payers for health care. And how is that different then from the idea of universal health care? Well, you can have universal health care, and many other countries do have universal health care with multiple payers. Um, Germany is sort of the classic example of has multiple payers, a lot of insur- different competing insurance companies, but everybody's covered in Germany. Um, that's true in the Netherlands and in Switzerland. So there's lots of ways to cover everyone that don't necessarily have to be a single payer, and they don't have to be public, or they don't have to be just private. They can be a combination. And then the last is Medicare for all. Uh, One of the main arguments against Medicare for all is that it would mean much higher government spending. Supporters, of course, counter that it would lead to overall less health care spending than the current system. There could be also uh, some sort of transition phase, something that Elizabeth Warren has been talking about. Uh, Explain this idea of Medicare for all and explain why a lot of people 
get very nervous when they hear that term. <laughs> well, Medicare for all it would create an entirely publicly financed, federal government financed health care system. All the bills would be paid by the federal government, a lot like Medicare, the existing program for 55 million seniors and people with disabilities. Um, but it wouldn't be exactly like Medicare, which is where a lot of people get very confused because the current Medicare program isn't all that generous. It doesn't cover uh, a lot of services that people are used to getting, like dental care and vision care and foot care. Um, and Medicare has large cost sharing. It has the There's a separate hospital and doctor deductible. Um, the drug coverage is also separate and private, and it sometimes it has its own deductible. Medicare is actually quite complicated, but the idea of Medicare for all would be the federal government would pay everybody's health bills. Um, they would it would pay a much more significant share of the health bills than the current Medicare plan pays, and that there would be no more private insurance. But the delivery system, the hospitals and the doctors, would remain private. And to add another layer of confusion, that's what they do in Canada. So, and it's and Canada's program is called Medicare. Mm-hmm. So it it does it's it's hard. Even the politicians sometimes sort of stumble over this. And as I, I say, there are distinctions between universal coverage and single payer and Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. A, a fourth term that's kind of related to that is public option, which is something that we talked about when the ACA was proposed. And that was one of the options that the administration put on the table. Congress was unable to get its mind around that. But but let's explain that term, too. You've got a couple candidates, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, who say that they want to revive the debate over public option rather than talking about Medicare for all. Well, Hillary Clinton in 2016 wanted to revive the That's debate right. about the public option. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the public option never really went away. It just couldn't get through the Senate. It did get through the House in mm-hmm. 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, but the public option would basically be a voluntary uh, federal government run or financed program um, that people could uh, choose alongside a private plan. So it, it's, as Pete Buttigieg likes to call it, it's Medicare for all who want it. There are different ways of doing public options. There are various Medicare buy-in proposals that may be older people, people over age 60 or over age 55 or over age 50 could buy into Medicare, the current Medicare, early. That would be one public option. Maybe uh, some some proposals would automatically enroll children who don't have insurance into a public option. Some of them would make, as the, the Affordable Care Act you know, originally envisioned, if you don't have employer health insurance or other government insurance, you could buy a public option alongside the private plans in the exchange. So there are a lot of ways to do a public option, but basically it's the idea would be to have a, a government-run plan side-by-side side with private plans. And, and so if you take all of these terms, single-payer, universal health care, Medicare for all, public option, and try to, I guess, place them on the spectrum of moderate change to radical change, which ones would be at uh, at, at which ends of, of that spectrum? Well, they're all pretty dramatic. Um, it's funny how much the debate has moved among the Democrats uh, who are talking about things. You know, Medicare for All has been out there. I think I went to my first Medicare for All uh, press conference in the late 1980s. It's not new. It's been kicking around and it's had a lot of support for, you know, all of those years, but it's never had sort of more than about a third of uh, uh, of support. So it, it's never had had a majority to get done because it would be a very dramatic change. Mm. Um, we're now seeing, you know, although at the beginning of the presidential campaign, we saw 
many of the uh, candidates embracing Medicare for all. And then I think as some of the backlash started and as people started to understand how big a change that would be, some of them sort of peeled off, including rather famously Elizabeth Warren, who didn't peel off but said, well, maybe we should do something more moderate first. But even a public option, if you'll recall, was too radical to get through in 2010 when there were 60 Democratic votes in the Senate. So that's the moderate plan now is the public option um, and sort of the, you know, the more sort of out there plan is is still Medicare for all and has been. And I think it's fair to say there's a lot more support for Medicare for all than there has been, partly because of the increasing costs that, that we talked about. But I'm still fairly confident that it, that it's not a majority. I mean, it's, uh, it's a majority among Democrats, but it's certainly not a majority among the entire population. And what pollsters have found is that when you ask people sort of specifically about some of the trade-offs for Medicare for all, starting with your taxes would go up, uh, support for a drop off rather dramatically. Hmm. My guest is Julie Rovner. She is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. She is with us today talking about health care, the different terms that define the health care debate here in the country, uh, the debates that are unfolding in the Democratic primary as candidates get ready for the intensity of the campaign trail and then the election here in November. This is all part of our new series called Defining 2020, where we want to drill down on the issues that will likely challenge us here in 2020 as we get ready to vote for a president in November of this year. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think of our current health care system. Have you gotten stuck with a big bill after an emergency visit and wondered why that happened? Do you have questions about your coverage? Are you concerned that rolling out a new health care system, which is something that many of the Democratic candidates say they want to do, will mean more time spent trying to navigate an already confusing sector or may mean more money out of your pocket. Uh, As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also join us on Facebook or on Twitter, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we get to listeners, Julie, I want to talk about surprise medical bills, which is something else we've heard a lot about lately. And it seems like it's something that's getting worse. Uh, Talk about the idea of Uh, how you end up with a bill, a very big bill in some cases, that you just were not anticipating. Yes, surprise medical bills are when uh, patients get bills from providers who are outside their network who they did not originally go to to seek care. Um, sometimes uh, you'll go to an in-network doctor and they'll send uh, send your test to an out-of-network lab. Sometimes you'll go to an in-network hospital and the emergency room doctor will be out of network or the radiologist who you know reads your CAT scan or x-rays will be out of network. Or even you go and have surgery um, and your surgeon is in network, but there might be an anesthesiologist who's out of network or an assistant surgeon who's out of network. Work. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier, I think the biggest issue right now are prices, um, the things that, that uh, physicians and hospitals are charging. And often if they're out of network, they haven't agreed to a particular charge. So they charge people, you know, not just thousands of dollars, but sometimes tens of thousands of dollars and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, Kaiser Health News and NPR have been partnering for the last year on something called the Bill of the Month, uh, where we sort of feature one particularly outrageous bill every month. We're going to continue to do that. So it's a big problem. It, it affects people not just, you know, who have all kinds of insurance, pretty much not Medicare and Medicaid, but employer insurance and insurance they buy themselves. And Congress um, 
Democrats and Republicans in Congress and President Trump all say they want to fix it. And they all have different ideas for fixing it. And the problem is the healthcare providers who are now charging lots and lots and lots of money um, don't necessarily want to take less money. Mm. So it's proven much more difficult than a lot of people anticipated. Congress has not been able to resolve this yet. Mm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, what's on your mind? You there, Hello. Robert? Hi. Yes, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, what about just a publicly held monopoly? A uh, publicly held monopoly single payer plan, similar to what we did with uh, electric. So Edison, right? right? In order to electrify the entire nation, right? We couldn't have what what Indians wound up doing, which was inefficient. The single-payer plan is efficiency, right? And it wouldn't add to taxpayer dollars because an individual could buy in at the most efficient method. Uh, Robert, that's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea. We have something kind of similar in states like Michigan, where Blue Cross Blue Shield, for instance, is the largest provider, and it makes it very difficult for other providers to to get into the market. But but Julie, address this idea of a publicly held monopoly that's not government run. Is that some is that one of the options we should be thinking about? Yes. I mean it is. I mean you could that as I was saying at the beginning, you can have single payer without the single payer being a government. Um that in fact there might be people who would be much more comfortable with that. And they could be and there are lots of, you know, of nonprofits. Originally the the blues plans were all nonprofit. That was the idea. They were there to serve the community, uh, to provide health insurance. And you know, now we and we still have many, many nonprofit health insurance companies side by side, you know, with with for-profit health insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So uh, you could do that. But I think, you know, people, particularly candidates on the trail, like to blame the insurance industry um, for things that are really providers' fault. Um, I mean, the insurance industry could do a better job at negotiating, but this has to do with very complicated economics of how many providers there are and how many insurers there are and how many patients there are. And sometimes if there's only one hospital, they can basically set the price for the insurer. If everybody has to go to that hospital, similarly, if there's only one insurer, but there's lots of hospitals, sometimes the insurer has the upper hand. So it varies. But what we've basically seen with our sort of very pluralistic um, uh, system is that prices have continued to go up and up and up. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we are going to continue our conversation about health care as we get ready to vote for the new next president of the United States in November and prepare for the campaign during which healthcare will be a big subject. We're going to continue talking about all of these issues and we want to continue to hear from you, Tim in Detroit, Carolyn in Royal Oak. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Julie Rovner. 
She is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. She is here talking about health care, the health care debate that is still going on in this country, maybe even more intensely than it did 10 years ago when we passed the Affordable Care Act. Why is that true? What are the issues? And what are the candidates who would be president likely to do if they're elected. Those are the things that we are discussing right now. And if you want to join the conversation, as always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, We've got lots of callers who want to talk about this issue, and I want to get to a couple of them before we change the subject here, Julie. Let's go to Carolyn in Royal Oak. Carolyn, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Hi. And I'm so glad you're doing this subject. Uh, I have been a nurse for over 60 years, mm. and I know that preventive medicine works. It works. We teach it from little up, and we, uh, instead of uh, fundraising for a uh, big big business, mm-hmm. we teach it and we prevent and that's the way you got to do it. Yeah. Carolyn, uh, I'm glad you called and, and shared that experience with us. Uh, Julie Rovner, one of the things that I remember being uh, talked about when we were debating the ACA was that it would lead to more preventative care because it would insure more people, keep them out of the so-called sort of emergency room care cycle where people don't don't do, deal with a medical problem until it's an emergency uh, and then it's more costly and the chances of successful treatment are, are lower. Did that actually happen? After it did. I mean, one of the things about the Affordable Care Act, and this was the Affordable Care Act, also incorporated uh, a number of provisions from a uh, what was called the Patients' Bill of Rights that Congress debated kind of furiously in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and never could quite get across the finish line. So that actually all got put into the ACA. One of the requirements was that insurance plans, almost all insurance plans, um, not just those that you buy on the exchanges, but most employer insurance plans, cover preventive care with no deductible. So those, you know, five, $6,000 deductibles we're talking about, you're supposed to be able to go and get your, your annual exam and, uh, you know, certain preventive tests for nothing. Uh, and that generally happens. The problem is there have been some loopholes. For instance, you can get a, a, a colonoscopy is considered preventive care, but if they find a polyp and take it off, then suddenly you can be on the hook for thousands of dollars. Um, so it's, you know, there's an incentive for people to get preventive care because it should be no upfront cost, but it is and always no upfront cost. Sometimes you have to argue about whether it's preventive care or not. Um, and so people are not as uh, incentivized to go seek preventive care as maybe they could be. But in general, most preventive care, things like flu shots, that's why every you know grocery store and pharmacy advertises their free flu shots, because that's something that required, that's a type of preventive care that's required to be covered with no copay. Mm. Uh, again, thanks very much, Carolyn, for the call. And the comments. Let's go to Dan in Davison. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, taking my call. I'm, I, I like the previous caller. I'm real happy that um, this is the subject today. Uh, my father uh, has been diagnosed with stage four cancer, something he's been kind of struggling with. Mm-hmm. In October, uh, he was put on Medicaid with what they called a spend down account, where he had to meet a specific deductible before uh, Medicaid would take over and pay for everything. Between October and November last year, he had $3,400 out of pocket. Um, and then with that, 
he only had maybe 14 days worth of insurance because he had to meet that spend down and then submit the documentation and then his insurance would kick in. Hmm. So he's you know been out of work. He can't work with, with his current condition. He had to spend over $3,000 out of pocket. And then most of his bills didn't get covered because in October he was only covered for like two days and then maybe a little over a week in November. And and again, Dan, this is under Medicare that this happened? Uh, this was under Medicaid. Medicaid. Um, okay. He got under Medicare this uh, as of January 1st, so he's in a bit of a better spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my main thought was, you know, I'm not in, super into the healthcare field. I'm not a, a, a politician, so I don't necessarily know what the solution would be. But the, the system we have currently just isn't working. Hmm. Uh, we have people who, who can't afford to, to basically eat and then also get their treatment. Deal with uh, their, their medical needs. Yeah, Dan, I, I really appreciate you calling and sharing that story. Uh, Julie Robner, talk about this spend down that, that apparently is part of the Medicaid system, which is, of course, different f- from, from Medicare, but it sounds like something that uh, may need to be addressed. That's right. And it, it's not a deductible. This is the, the structure of Medicaid. Medicare is uh, a universal program for people over age 65 or people who, uh, after two-year waiting period, qualify for Social Security disability. Um, Medicaid is program for people with low incomes, and that's where the, the spend-down part comes in. It's not a deductible. Um, you can't qualify for Medicaid until your income is is to a, below a certain point, and in general, your assets are below a certain point. That's changed somewhat, and I know Michigan just expanded Medicaid, and so some of the rules around that have changed. But generally, what Spend Down says is that we will cover you with Medicaid, but you basically have to impoverish yourself first. Mm-hmm. That's basically how that happens. And that that's not a function of the ACA per se. It's no. just a, a function of Medicaid. Correct? No, in fact, the ACA made it easier to get on Medicaid. Mm. Um, that this is a function of how Medicaid works as a program for people with low incomes. Mm. But yeah, it's true. I mean, the, 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 in, in many states, and it does vary by state, you know, the, the amount that you have to spend down to can, can leave you very much impoverished before the, the state government and with shared by the federal government starts picking up your bills under Medicaid. Um, once, once you get on Medicare, if you're already qualified for Medicaid, you can be on both of them. They're called dual eligibles, people mm-hmm. who are then Medicare pays bills first and what doesn't get paid gets picked up by Medicaid. Uh, Again, thanks very much, Dan, for the call and the story. Let's go to Lori and Troy. Lori, what's on your mind? Hi there. Hi. I have a really interesting perspective because I was employed by other people as full-time staff member for most of my career up until the last two years. And then we were, my husband and I were faced with a thousand dollars a month that we write a check for out of our pocket um, to pay our health insurance premium and an $8,200 deductible. Wow. Well, I got cancer and my deductible spread out over two years. So there's, you know, 15, 16,000 to the hospital. And then now I have to continue to get treatment and I'm starting a new calendar year with another deductible. And it is, it's crazy what you end up having to spend. And yes, we we're paying it. But there's a reason that cancer is the number one cause of bankruptcy in our country, Mm. um, because they make it so expensive to get the care you need. Even if you have the income and can afford to pay the premium, can you afford the deductible? Can you afford the deductible, which is a question a lot of people are asking. Go ahead. Exactly. One of my things, too, is do do we do ourselves a disservice by paying for our health insurance through employers? Because it's a little less painful when we pay it through our paychecks than it is when we pay it out of pocket. If we were all writing that check every month right. and seeing what we didn't get, 
we might force change faster. Hmm. Uh, Laurie, I'm really glad you called and shared that perspective. Julie Ravner, react to what she's saying. The difference between having insurance through your employer and having to get it yourself is is one of the key uh, issues I think she's raising there. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, and it, you know, I've been in my career. I've been both employed and had employer insurance, uh, and and self-employed and bought my own insurance. And you know, that was. 15, 20 years ago, but even it was expensive even then. And, you know, as you aged, you got, you know, it got more expensive. That This is why, you know, there's been a, a particular problem with people sort of over the age of, of 45 or so who are sort of pre-Medicare, that 45 to 65 range. It's really, really expensive. Um, and But I, I think caller's also right that the what people are really feeling right now is not, it's less the premiums and more the deductibles, the, the sharp spike in deductibles, um, which very few people can afford to pay. And then you get a serious or chronic illness um, and suddenly you have to, you know, pay thousands of thousands of dollars. And that's with your insurance. You have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars. And I think that's probably the primary reason why healthcare is such a big political issue today, because it is affecting so many people um, in a, such a big way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other ways that people are being affected by healthcare is long-term care. Uh, the, the, this idea of, uh, <laughs> of of people who need care over a over a long period of time. Can you talk a little about how that is maybe driving anxiety uh, among Americans about healthcare as well? This is a really undercovered and untalked about issue. I actually, uh, when I started covering healthcare in 1986, it was one of the first big stories that I did. What are we going to do about long-term care, particularly for the baby boomers? Most long-term care is not really medical. It's mm-hmm. people who need help with what are called activities of daily living, of you know, getting out of bed and getting dressed and going to the bathroom and cooking. Um, those are things that get harder as you get older, mm-hmm. and those are not strictly medical things. These are not people who are quote-unquote sick. These are people who are sort of elderly and frail. Um, So Medicaid in general doesn't cover uh, long-term care unless you actually need nursing home care or medical home care. Medicare covers almost no long-term care. Medicaid is basically the coverage of last resort. Um, But it's it's very, you know, it's a a big burden on federal programs. Long-term care insurance has been tried, but basically only the people who are pretty sure they're going to need it have been buying it. So there's not a lot of people with long-term care insurance because it's very expensive. But we have, you know, the the oldest baby boomers uh, are now in their in their mid early to mid seventies, and when you start to need long-term care is usually in your late seventies and eighties. So we're going to get hit really really hard and really fast in about five years, and nobody's talking about it. Mm. Uh, the the other related subject to that is this idea of caregiving. Right, that uh, lots of people end up in a in the role of having to provide that care or find a way to provide that care for family members, parents, or, or, or other relatives, uh, and I think that also of course, leads to people being really anxious about the state of the healthcare system. And and they and well they should be. And it tends to be women who become caregivers. Mm-hmm. And they talk about this sandwich generation, women who are caring for aging parents and children at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does tend to push women out of the workforce because if you're caring for someone full time you obviously can't also have a full time job. Um, it is it's really it is it is a very big deal. Um, and it is really one of the sort of 
less paid attention to social issues. It's not necessarily, it's not completely a health issue. It's a social issue that we're not really addressing, but are going to need to soon. Hmm. I also want to talk about reproductive rights in healthcare. At the October debate, one by one, the candidates all vowed to push for abortion access, which is, I think, in response to a slew of recent conservative efforts in lots of states to kind of whittle away more at Roe v. Wade, if not attack it square on. Talk about how reproductive care fits into the overall healthcare debate. Uh, well, reproductive care, I mean, obviously the Democrats haven't talked about it that much, particularly in their debates, because they don't disagree on it. It's mm-hmm. not an area where they can draw distinctions among each other. But obviously the there's enormous disagreement in the country. And I think this is one of the main reasons, in fact, they say it, why, you know, evangelicals and, and many very conservative people still support President Trump, despite many of the things that he has done that they probably disagree with, that they say they disagree with. But he's been incredibly staunch um, at trying to root out uh, any any support, not just for abortion, but in some cases, birth control in the federal government. States have been emboldened to pass laws to try to take out Roe v. Wade because now they perceive that they might actually have a majority on the Supreme Court. And we will find out later this year. There's a case out of Louisiana that is before the court this term. Uh, and we will we will hear about that. In fact, it's a law that's almost identical to a law out of Texas that the Supreme Court actually struck down in 2016. So, I mean, it would be a a pretty quick reversal. Um, so yes, this is this is a big issue. Democrats are trying to to sort of rally their forces, um, pointing out you know that President Trump has basically you know restocked the entire federal judiciary with the help of the Republican Senate. The Senate did almost nothing this fall in terms of legislation. All they did was approve you know Trump nominated judges. So this is a, a big deal that also is not getting perhaps as much attention as it could be. Mm-hmm. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Julie Rovner about health care, and we're going to hear more from you, Amy in Detroit, Tim in Detroit, Marilyn in Oak Park, Dan in Detroit. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today at 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest is Julie Rovner. She is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and she is here talking about health care in the context of 2020. We are launching a new series this week here at WDET called Defining 2020, where we drill down on the various issues that we anticipate will challenge us the most in this election year, this presidential election year. As always, you can join us for the conversation at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also join us on Facebook or on Twitter, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Great show and great topic. Thank you. Hey, I, I just wanted to know a little about uh, health savings account and flexible spending account. I had a health savings account last year, which enabled me to kind of save and then uh, carry over to the next year for any kind of health uh, deductibles I had. Mm-hmm. And I went into a plan this year, and 
since I changed plans, they took the health savings account away and put me into a flexible spending account and uh, limit the amount I could put in. And now I don't have enough to really cover my expenses that I have at here. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little about that. Hmm. Uh, Tim, uh, great question. Julie, talk about the difference between health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts. Well, they're both ways if you have enough money to set aside or in some cases for your employer. In the case of the health savings account, your employer can provide you with some money to help seed that health savings account to basically uh, put away money tax-free for medical expenses. Now, the health savings account has to come with a qualifying health plan uh, with a high deductible, which used to be the, the high deductible when they originally started was $1,000, which sounds like a low deductible today, but I believe the the amount is now has have at least a $1,500 deductible to qualify for a health savings account. The health savings account is separate. Um, the money, as the caller mentioned, can roll over if you don't spend it. And when you turn 65, you can take it out tax-free for anything. It doesn't have to be for health expenses. So it's 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 quite a, a uh, an attractive tax shelter if you have money. Um, flexible uh, savings account, uh, flexible spending account, a little bit different. Uh, the money, if you don't, it's a use it or lose it. If you don't use the money in the calendar year. Um, it, it goes back to, to your employer. Um, but it's the same idea that you get to put away money tax-free that can be then used for medical expenses. Um, some people with flexible spending accounts, I have one of these, has a card. So when I go and buy prescriptions, I just give them the card and it, it's basically a credit card, but it automatically comes out of my uh, flexible spending account. Um, they have changed the rules for these uh, recently um, to make them a little bit more flexible. But generally, they're, they're both of the same category, which is to say, you can put money away uh, for certain medical expenses. Hmm. And from an employer perspective, is there an advantage to having one of these as part of your health benefits or the other? I don't think so. There may be some some different tax benefits. It, it's there's there. It gets very complicated very fast. Yeah. Um, I should mention that flexible spending accounts can also be used for child care, and that's that's pretty pretty common and pretty popular. Um, but uh, you know, it it, it well, it is it is often a perk that employers will want to provide. And the the health savings accounts were originally the conservatives' idea of, as I mentioned earlier, making people more aware of what they spend because that health savings account would be their own money, and perhaps they would be you know more willing to negotiate or more desirous of negotiating on price if it's their money that they're spending. But as I also mentioned, it's really hard to find out prices in advance. Mm. Tim, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Amy in Detroit. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks uh, mm-hmm. for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a small business owner in Detroit, and from a business owner's perspective, the the need to have to navigate the quagmire of the healthcare system in order to try to offer benefits uh, is incredibly burdensome from an administrative perspective. Uh, we we also, as a very small business, have never been able to really afford to offer uh, healthcare benefits, and so ultimately we have a lot of challenges attracting and retaining employees that really only have ACA as an option, which isn't to you know isn't a good option um, from a lot of people's perspectives. So 
um, if you could talk about the small business perspective, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, Amy, I think that's a, a wonderful dimension to add to the conversation here. Julie Rovner, what about small businesses? It and- is. Uh, you know, I... I keep writing this story over and over again. When the ACA passed, one of the things it really was also intended to fix was not just the individual market, but the small business market. And there were a number of proposals and and pieces of the law. There were tax credits for small businesses. um, And there was something called the shop exchange, which was where small businesses were supposed to be able to go to to help find insurance for for their employees. And basically what happened when the, the exchanges kind of blew up on launch in 2013 all of the work went into basically getting standing up the the market for individuals and the small business part of it basically just got left to the side and so it's never really been addressed so it was it was a goal of the affordable care act if you want to point to things that that were kind of failures that was definitely one of the failures you know small businesses are not covered by the employer mandate which is still in effect which requires you know many most employers to or not most employers larger employers to provide uh, health insurance to their employees because most employers are actually small businesses and they are exempt, but it was only the very smallest businesses that were eligible for the tax credits. The tax credits weren't very big mm-hmm. um, and it, it just the whole program really didn't work that well. And it's one of the things that, you know, again, like long-term care was is, is a known problem, but just hasn't really been addressed yet. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much, Amy, for the call. Let's go to Dan in Detroit. Dan, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, Going to the political side, I think one thing you keep talking about is a presidential election, but it seems to me that the Senate is more important than this because mm-hmm. any of the presidential candidates are probably more expansive in terms of health care than the Senate would be. So I'd like to get Julie's perspective on what the gamut of possibilities are actually politically in the Senate. Thanks. Uh, a great question, Dan. Uh, Julie, we talked a little earlier about how the Senate was the roadblock to a number of things that were proposed when the ACA was being debated, and it has, of course, been even tougher in the years in between. If Democrats were to win, I guess, the Senate this time, would that make some of the things that the Democratic candidates are talking about easier or more likely to pass? It might make it easier, but it's hard to know how much easier. You know, this is people kind of forget this about both the House and the Senate. Whoever has a majority basically has it by owning the swing districts or states. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's making the Democratic majority in the House right now are not the, the you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes, who's from a liberal district anyway. It's the, the members, it's the, the 20 or 30 members from those swing districts that mm-hmm. were held by Republicans. The same would be true, you know, the same is true right now in the Senate. You have, you know, Republican control, but then you have those three or four moderate Republicans, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Cory Gardner, to some extent, who are, you know, feeling pushed because they're from bluer states, even though they're Republicans. Well, if the the Democrats win back the Senate, they're going to win back on the basis of some of those states that are redder and will likely be more conservative Democrats. I mean, Joe Manchin, classic example from West Virginia, very conservative Democrat because he's from a very conservative state. So even even if the Democrats win back the Senate, they it might they might not be sort of as able to do more liberal things that you know everybody assumes that presidential candidates say, you know if I win back the Senate we'll be able to do all these things not so fast and then there's the question of the filibuster mm-hmm. which takes sixty votes for many things and there's a lot of push to to get rid of the filibuster um, which is a whole probably discussion unto itself. Sure, but what's a realistic expectation? 
for some of these ideas that are on the table, things like universal health care or Medicare for all. Are they are they really things that could happen politically or are they kind of pipe dreams? It would be really hard, sort of given the way the Senate particularly um, is configured now that you there's so much clout from states with such a small population um, and those tend to be redder states that, you know, it's always been hard to do major things on health care. This has been a more than a hundred year effort to fix the U.S. health care system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it predates a lot of the, you know, <laughs> the current political fights. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that, that some of the things that the Democratic candidates are talking about would be unbelievably difficult to do. Look at how hard it is for Congress to fix the surprise bills problem or to fix the drug price problem. Um, the health care is almost a fifth of the economy. The people who make money off of health care have a lot of clout in Washington. Unless and until that changes, it's going to be hard to make really big changes that deprive them of money. Mm. Uh, again, Dan, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Marilyn in Oak Park. Marilyn, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. I have a question for Julie. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you heard about some Medicare Advantage plans that are being investigated for fraud because they are upcoding, I think that's the right word for it, upcoding diagnoses in order to get more money from the government? Mm. Uh, Marilyn, great question. Medicare Advantage, of course, is uh, optional coverage that if you want more than what basic Medicare offers that you can buy. Uh, what about these allegations of, uh, of fraud? With well, this, this has been sort of a perpetual problem with Medicare and Medicaid, with um, providers and some cases insurers um, trying to sort of get more money than maybe they're entitled to. My colleague Fred Schulte at Kaiser Health News has done some of the important work on this very story. In fact, I think he broke it. Um, so you can, if you go to, to KHN.org, you can find Fred's work on this very issue. But, you know, with something that is so large and such a big part of the economy, there is always going to be fraud and abuse, and there's always going to be people who fight fraud and abuse. Um, and it, it's just sort of a continuing struggle uh, in, in the healthcare sector mm-hmm. to, to, you know, try to pay people fairly but not overpay them and not pay people who are trying to cheat the system. Yeah. One of the things that critics of the system talk about and critics of reform talk about a lot is this idea um, of of waste, fraud and abuse. How big of the how, how much of the problem, I guess, could be attributed to things like that? Well, those are they're not all the same. Um, sure. You know. Fraud is considered it's considered to be up to ten percent of healthcare spending, but the much bigger problem is care that's not necessarily doing anything. And there have been enormous amounts of effort to try to figure out how to incentivize the right care rather than just what people get paid to provide, um, or things that doctors provide because they think it's helpful, but there's not necessarily any evidence to prove that it is helpful. Right. So there's a lot of overuse uh, in the, the healthcare sector, um, but nobody knows quite how to, to, to make that work better, to either get the incentives right or to get the research evidence base right. Although I think we've come, to, to, we've, we've come far in the last 30 years, but there's still a long way to go. Okay. Julie Robiner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. It was really great to have you with us here for this conversation. Thanks it's for my being pleasure. here. My yeah. pleasure. 
All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. Hope you will too. We're going to talk about the fallout from President Trump's ordered killing of a top military general in Iran. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.